Okay, good morning. Welcome to the fourth meeting with the Special Committee on Governance. Can I have a motion to confirm the minutes of the June 11th, 2019 meeting? Councillor Perks, agenda. All those in favor? Two items. Item GV 4.1. It's been almost a year since our sham of an election. This is the Special Committee on Governance in Toronto. It was established to try and deal with the sudden changes Doug Ford's provincial government made to the makeup of Toronto Council, slashing the number of council seats in half in the middle of the municipal election. While some councillors, like the Governance Committee's chair, Stephen Holliday, have celebrated more efficient council meetings since the cut, which they attribute to the 20-something empty seats, others, like Councillor Gord Perks, point out there were other causes behind Toronto Council's dysfunction. Councillor Perks. So, um, I've got a few <laughs> questions and or things. Um, sorry, the slides aren't numbered. Um, oh, yes, I apologize for that. So that's okay. So, looking at it, by my math, comparing 2014 to 2010, we did 27% more items per hour. And that's with no change in the size of council. That's just a change with mm, the mayor. And then if you compare 18 to 14, we have a 34% increase in the number of items done per hour. Is that... You're talking for city council or you're talking overall? Council. Um, yeah, I don't have the percentages in front of me, but what you described to my eye looks about right. So the, the size and the change of the number of items per hour uh, can change just by who's in the administration to almost the same extent as the number of councillors. Is that what that data tells me? Well, there are a number of factors, I guess, that you know relate to which items council decides to hold and, and, uh, and get into an in-depth debate. And... Uh, I suppose I could even speculate that having Doug Ford on council or not greatly affected our efficiency, but that's not for you to answer. Um. This will be an exciting committee to watch as it begins to reach out to people and ask them how to improve local government within the restrictions the Ford government has imposed. This could include ideas like multiple small local community boards, something we should consider regardless of the number of city wards. But these discussions still happen under the shroud of what came before last October. We haven't heard much from Doug Ford these days. By many accounts, he's been hidden out of the way in order to give Andrew Shear's Conservatives room to campaign federally without having to explain their loud friend from Toronto. But while Ford may be laying low, Toronto is still dealing with the repercussions from his actions last year. Hard to forget and forgive when you're still doing damage control. This is Spacing Radio. Broadcasting from the Broom Closet at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto, Ontario, I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, the Ontario Human Rights Commission published new policies surrounding racial profiling and policing. And we have an update on the long and brutal saga of Doug Ford's Toronto election meddling. But first, it's been too long since we checked in with our friends out west, and nearly half a year since Jason Kenney's United Conservative Party took power in Alberta. 
Recently, the provincial government commissioned McKinnon Report was released, recommending a number of overhauls and belt-tightening measures. Notably, it said Alberta cities and towns need to pay more of their own way. And that's got some people worried about the future, especially when it comes to major urban infrastructure projects. Journalist and podcaster Tim Querengesser explains from Edmonton. Stand by. I think it's been a summer of, let's say, fingernails bitten down to the nub sort of thing for some of the cities, especially Edmonton and Calgary. Um, we don't yet have a budget, but we do have this harbinger of what may come in the form of what was called a blue ribbon report. So uh, the Kenny government has already established a pattern of bringing in experts to detail a problem and pr- propose some solutions. And they, they often frame these very, very rigidly. So uh, their critics have said that they often are sort of pushing the experts to give them the answers that they're seeking. We had a report come in from Janice McKinnon. She's the former finance minister of Saskatchewan. The Kenny government asked her and others to have a look at Alberta's finances. And the marching orders were basically figure out how to get Alberta back into fiscal health, but no new taxes and no new sort of uh, ways to raise revenue. So, Unsurprisingly, there's been a lot of proposed cuts within uh, McKinnon's report. The most, I'd say, alarming or worrisome bit, though, for Calgary and Edmonton was that not only did McKinnon uh, suggest that uh, Alberta should scrap its already established uh, money that it dedicates to its cities and municipalities, she also recommended that Alberta scrap two city charters that it created in 2018 with Edmonton and Calgary, its two big cities. So those charters, if you know much about how our cities here receive their money, were actually a step backward that uh, basically Edmonton and Calgary, uh, in, in exchange for uh, let's say predictability and long-term funding, took somewhat of a pay cut. If you, if you will, and so they agreed to less money over as, over time to replace the uh, municipal grant that was expiring in 2022. This is the municipal sustainability initiative. That's right. So McKinnon has basically said both of those should go, and you know, no no suggestion of what should come to take their place. That's a bit worrisome for Calgary and Edmonton, both of which have some significant projects, the Green Line in Calgary and the West Valley LRT extension here in Edmonton that need not only funding, but long-term secured funding. So um, as we go forward into 2019 with Edmonton and Calgary being two of the fastest growing large cities in the country, we don't know where or how much uh, or how, over what time period we're going to get our money from the province. What are the tools that are open to uh, municipalities like Calgary and Edmonton to fill that funding gap if the province uh, cuts the level of spending that they're giving to these uh, cities? That's what I found interesting. So the McKinnon report didn't provide you know, a recommendation that cities then in, in turn be given new ways to raise revenues, which is, I find, quite interesting. So the suggestion being that we just need to cut our spending. 
To be fair here, the Kenny government during the election campaign said that these projects would be supported. There's been some further discussion of that. We had Mayor Iveson from Edmonton go and meet with Premier Kenny. There was some kind of commitments, but uh, basically he left and he said he didn't have anything really in writing yet, which is somewhat worrisome. And then you've got Kenny t- saying that the McKinnon report will inform their capital spending planning over the next 20 years. So they're going to do like a strategic capital spending plan. And that McKinnon report will be the DNA of that plan. So it does signal that there's a fundamental shift coming. And like you, like you've pointed out, well, then how are cities supposed to raise their revenues? Well, we haven't seen Alberta suggest to its cities, hey, you might be able to raise revenue using X, Y, or Z. Definitely both the big city mayors here have been calling for that sort of stuff, but we haven't seen it yet. But on the other hand, looking at, you know, just at some poll quotes from the report, it does say that municipalities have tax room. Is it simply encouraging cities to uh, increase their property tax? I think that's how I would read it. Mm -hmm. Different thinkers here in Alberta suggest that, you know, property tax is this wonderfully transparent tax that you almost sort of pay directly for the service you receive. And cities are therefore very responsive to any increase. They have to justify every last little nickel and dime. So I think that there is suggestion that cities, if they want to build these projects, should have to raise money, raise taxes to to increase their their revenues. I would argue that, you know, going along the lines of some of the big city uh, organizations that are lobbying during the federal election at the moment, cities raise something around 10 cents for every tax dollar that we collect in the country, and yet they have 60% of the the infrastructure on the ground. So there's, there's a fundamental disconnect between the numbers. So I don't know if I would agree with that assessment, but I think that, yeah, I think that the suggestion would be, yeah, just increase property taxes. And you mentioned that uh, Kenny has said that this report is going to be the sort of guiding light for future financial policy. So these are long-term goals and and long-term legislation. Can these things be sort of overturned? I mean, governments are uh, often uh, turned over in in, in the timeframe that these legislations propose. A lot of the groups here that push for increased funding or more sustainable funding or more predictable funding make that very point that their main problem is that political winds change and things change and their 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 long-term planning is kind of sent, the, the wires are crossed in that because basically they have to kind of read the political winds and, and, and that's what you're seeing happen here right as we speak. Right now, Edmonton and Calgary aren't so sure what's going to happen with their some of the biggest projects in their history, you know, and that's just an, an incredible situation to have in, in a city that's, you know, we're, we're talking about in Edmonton at least hitting 2 million people by 2044, but we're unsure if we can build an LRT extension. So, yeah, the political winds do shift. And I think that that's been a long-term frustration in the province. We hear a lot uh, often in the news about a kind of economic slump that Alberta is going through. And the report here makes the case that uh, Alberta already makes uh, a very large per capita investment in cities uh, compared to other provinces. But I do wonder how much of this uh, new sort of belt tightening recommendation is about scrapping the carbon tax and, and the revenue that that would have brought in. 
I definitely think it's part of it that the carbon tax was definitely being used by the former NDP government to fund various things, infrastructure investments in different uh, municipalities across Alberta. I don't think that that's the central reason for the McKinnon report suggesting such deep cuts or uh, pointing to such extreme measures. I think that the general reality is that Alberta has for, let's say, four or five years just been experiencing a general downturn in its economic fortunes. And uh, that's really just tied to the price of oil. And unfortunately, without other sources of revenue for the provincial government, so we don't have a provincial sales tax and other ways to raise revenue, uh, that just directly affects how much we have to spend. Are Alberta's major cities able to take on this uh, this added uh, financial burden themselves? Well, we'll see. It's interesting times. I mean, the Kenny government has repealed the carbon tax put in place by the former NDP government here in Alberta. Basically, what that means is at some point, the federal carbon tax will kick in. What we could see is just that Edmonton and Calgary uh, change the, the sources of who's contributing what to what project. So, for instance, the green line in Calgary is split basically a third for each level of government, about $1.5 billion for each. So the city, the province, and the feds, perhaps, you know, in this new uh, political climate uh, with these new fiscal realities, maybe the, the federal government will kick in more money because it will recognize that these tax dollars are coming from the same people. I don't know if that's a long-term sustainable plan, but that's potentially one of the more interesting things that could shift. Right now, we're waiting to see the budget, uh, which is going to come out right after the federal election. So in Alberta, we're kind of waiting to see what happens next. All right. Well, Tim, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you. Racial profiling, or prejudice within police forces across Canada, has been the subject of plenty of discussion and criticism about the way racialized people are treated by law enforcement. There have been reports and inquiries that demonstrate there's a discrepancy in the way people of color are treated by police in this country, but some crucial data is missing. To address this, the Ontario Human Rights Commission has released a new policy aimed at eliminating racial profiling in law enforcement and among its recommendations is collecting racial data from police stops in order to identify systemic biases, something the Toronto Police Services Board is committed to for next year. OHRC Chief Commissioner Renu Mandani walks us through the new policy. So uh, our new policy on eliminating racial profiling in law enforcement is the first policy of its kind in Canada And I think it's fitting that the Ontario Commission is putting it forward because our expertise has been recognized by the Supreme Court and really internationally in terms of racial profiling. The policy consolidates a growing body of case law and inquiry findings and clarifies the nature of racial profiling, how it manifests itself, and also introduces new concepts like racial under-policing and issues related to artificial intelligence. I think the policing of racialized people in Ontario is something that uh, has long been a, a topic of conversation and something that we've been wrestling with in the province for a long time, uh, going all the way back to the days of Bob Ray. 
and uh, we've been speaking to it more directly in recent conversations around carding. Is that sort of the genesis of this policy? Yes. So the commission had done an inquiry on racial profiling back in 2003. And at that time, much of the debate about was about whether racial profiling exists and whether police engage in racial profiling. I think that thanks to the efforts of uh, people like, you know, Bob Ray and Stephen Lewis and Justice Michael Tulloch, who have documented uh, issues of police relations with racialized communities, but also because of the advocacy of groups like Black Lives Matter, I think we are at a stage where there is widespread acknowledgement even within police that racial profiling happens, that it is real, and that it's illegal and harmful. What this policy does is try to offer practical guidance to support law enforcement to both identify and eliminate racial profiling. So I think what makes it different from past studies and reports is it's not backward-looking, it's forward-looking. It's trying to offer guidance on identifying the more modern ways that racial profiling manifests itself. So, for example, looking at under-policing of racialized communities. So things like inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, which found that Indigenous women, because of the particular stereotypes about them, do not benefit equally from police services. So trying to modernize our understanding of racial profiling, but then also to provide forward-looking action So identifying seven key principles that law enforcement should commit to and implement to actually tackle racial profiling. And I think that really sets this apart from some of the previous studies that look more at how racial profiling has existed. This is really looking at what police can do to address it. Right. And one of the things that uh, the commission says police can do is keep data of the statistics of the people that are stopped. Was that not being done or was that data being taken and just not made being made public or? So um, as far as we understand, that kind of data has not been kept by police. So the commission is also in the middle of an inquiry into racial profiling by the Toronto police. And one of the things that we asked for as part of that inquiry was disaggregated race-based data on police-civilian interactions. And we were advised, and, you know, when I I believe that they don't keep this information in this way. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the seven principles, one of them is data collection. It's also about engaging with communities to understand their lived experience, because I think the data only makes sense if you couple that with qualitative evidence. And it goes on to talk about um, monitoring and accountability and the need for police organizations to plan how they are going to diversify, for example, the officers and the senior command as well. Right. Previous to these policies, uh, advocates have been saying that there's a problem like such as racial profiling and carding and that kind of thing. Maybe that some people would be inclined to write that argument off as just anecdotal. Is, is that kind of the problem that uh, the commission's trying to tackle? Yeah, I think that, first of all, it is trying to bring a more evidence-based approach to the whole problem. So mm-hmm. really highlighting that, you know, social science methodology around data collection and analysis can be used to understand racial profiling. And I think in particular to isolate those 
police-civilian interactions that may raise concerns because certainly there's been a public conversation around carding. There's been a public conversation about use of force, but we haven't really tracked all the different types of police-civilian interactions that exist and whether all of them suffer from racial disparities. And I think probably most importantly, the, the policy is really aiming to speak to law enforcement and kind of meet them where they're at and provide them with guidance on how to address racial profiling. And I think what I was most pleased with out of this policy was that the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police, which represents Ontario's police leaders, committed to the seven principles we put forward to prevent and address racial profiling. So I do think we are at a kind of different moment in terms of even the police's acceptance and understanding that more needs to be done to tackle racial profiling. However, this same week, it's been an odd week for talking about uh, you know police collection of data. And, and this week, it, it sort of came out that the OPP have, have stopped making public uh, gender-based data. That seems like odd timing. It's exactly what the commission is trying to address, uh, it sounds to me like. You know, what was also remarkable is that the Toronto Police last week released a race-based data collection policy, which I think would implement much of what we talk about in the policy around data collection. So I think we are poised to see much more robust information be collected and released by the Toronto Police Service. And our hope is that other police services, including the OPP, will follow suit. Right. I was wondering what what the next steps might be. Uh, You you mentioned that you have the support of the Association of Police Chiefs, uh, is this kind of policy uh, from the commission, is it sort of a, the, the police boards uh, opt-in? Is it kind of up to them? You know, we, we received the commitment from the chiefs. Uh, the police boards also expressed their support for the policy. What that actually means, of course, is yet to be seen. The province has started to consult on the regulations uh, related to the Police Act. And so one thing that we are starting to talk about with the chiefs and the boards is whether there's any kind of agreement on the need to have a regulation related to racial profiling. So I think that we are starting to work with the police to think about what regulations might make sense to implement some of these principles. And we've also committed to work with them to provide training to police on how to identify racial profiling. So, you know, there's a few more steps, I think, that we're hoping to take collaboratively but certainly we will be monitoring individual police services and how they commit to these to these principles. And uh, one final thing I wanted to ask you that sort of piqued my interest, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about smart cities and kind of technology. So I wondered if you could unpack the AI component of this policy, that sort of thing. You know, there's this new movement in police called sort of predictive policing, and essentially it uses data that's inputted into a software algorithm that determines crime-related risk levels for particular people or places. And so really, I guess, fundamentally, our, our position is that if you have data that's flawed by stereotypes or racial bias inputted into these algorithms, the algorithms will essentially reproduce those same biases. So I think we are just urging caution 
in the use of new technology to ensure that the data itself isn't tainted by racial profiling or racial discrimination because what can happen is when you use these software algorithms, they appear very objective, but you have to really assess the quality of the data that's inputted into them before you can actually rely on them because they might actually be replicating racial bias or racial discrimination. Finally, it's been a year since the Court of Appeal struck down Justice Edward Bellababa's finding that Doug Ford government's changing the makeup of Toronto Council, called Bill 5, was unconstitutional. The city appealed that decision, and the results of that appeal have come out. A split decision, 3-2, to two, saying the election meddling did not undermine candidates' freedom of expression. To make sense of these proceedings, we reached Don Eadie, lawyer and partner at Polaire Roland Barristers, who has been arguing against Bill 5 from the beginning. All right, so, uh, Donald, first, can you explain what the, what the update is with the appeal from the city? Yeah, so both the trial level and essentially the stay decision were appealed to a five-member panel of the Court of Appeal, and the city lost its appeal three judges to two. There were two dissenting judges of the five. So the next steps, uh, if the city chooses to, uh, they can seek leave to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada, which is usually a three-member panel decides whether or not there are issues of national importance and whether the case is important enough for the Supreme Court of Canada to hear. And if so, they will grant leave for the city to appeal. And then there will be a hearing in front of the full panel, uh, all nine members of the Supreme Court of Canada, and that will be the final decision. So you've been kind of involved and very outspoken uh, in this debate uh, since it happened. Uh, can you explain to, for the listeners uh, what, what the start of your involvement was in sort of uh, the push against Bill 5? Yeah, so, um, you know, when all this happened, I guess, in the summer of 2018, and taking me back a little bit, uh, we were approached by a number of candidates and some citizens groups. And what we did was we intervened in those um Cases And so we were full participants in the trial-level decision before Justice Bellababa and in front of the uh, stay panel of the Court of Appeal. So basically what, uh, I mean, the arguments were made by different people. We, we kind of divided up the arguments a little bit in terms of all the people on our side. There were freedom of association arguments. There were freedom of expression arguments. There were equality arguments. There were unwritten constitutional principle arguments, all of which were designed to try to convince the court that the Ford government's legislation was unconstitutional and ought to be struck down. And uh, the the most recent decision, it seemed to hinge on a charter argument, specifically uh, the section that pertains to freedom of speech, uh, which is known as Section 2B. Yes. The basis of the decision of Justice Balababa was that Bill 5 violated the candidate's rights to freedom of expression by changing the rules in mid-election. In the early days when we started talking about this and what people in opposition of Bill 5, what their challenges might be, 
Section 2B of the Charter was brought up as, as one of many. Uh, there were other arguments. Those didn't seem to take hold in, in the courts. There, yeah, there were arguments about freedom of association. There were equality rights arguments. Um, and there were arguments that we focused on, which were the unwritten constitutional principle of democracy. Those arguments didn't carry the day before Justice Bellababa, and nor did anything carry the day at all in the Court of Appeal, except for the dissenting opinion about the freedom of expression rights being violated. And uh, those those two dissenting opinions, uh, they were pretty bold in their language. Yes. Well, I think, and, you know, like I can't crawl inside the judges' heads, but I think that if you start from the proposition that there is always something wrong when a government interferes in a democratic electoral process for no apparent reason, right? Mm -hmm. It it should, and it did, rob at least two of the five members of the Court of Appeal the wrong way. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that the government has ever fully been able to justify why they did this to any constitutional standard or, frankly, any other standard. So judges are rightly concerned with governments trampling all over people's rights. I mean, we've seen it recently with the UK Supreme Court around the Brexit stuff and the proroguing of parliament over there. And I think there ought to be judicial limits on the legislature's ability to do this sort of thing without any apparent justification other than the only justification they ever said was it was going to save a couple of million dollars. And as a legal practitioner following this for now over a year, what do you think the saga has kind of said about the way our charter's drawn up, the rights of cities or the the lack thereof, and does something need to be done? Do we need to kind of broaden this conversation and, and start talking on a national level? There was a similar challenge brought when Mike Harris's government amalgamated the five municipalities into the megacity. So there's been calls for granting the municipal level of government a form of sort of status under the Constitution whether it's a, a charter or not the charter of rights, but that there be municipal charters. Um, and I think that's something given the overall importance to cities, not just in terms of elections that ought to be seriously considered. Now, do I think that there's any likelihood that the um, national government or the provincial governments are going to open up the constitution to allow municipalities to have those sort of rights? I don't think so, you know? Right. Um, so I guess, uh, will you be watching uh, the next sort of iteration of this fight with interest? Well, of course. I mean, the first step is whether or not the city applies for and is granted leave to appeal. Right. If they are, then, uh, you know, um, you're in front of very experienced senior judges and you've always got a shot. Okay. Well, uh, uh, Don, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Okay. No problem. Thank you. At the time I'm recording this, it's not clear if the city will pursue an appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada, the country's highest. But council did vote to allow the city's legal counsel to seek such an appeal. The legal battle may well continue. Whether or not it does, the repercussions of this total dismissal of Toronto's agency will continue to be felt. And you'll continue to hear about it right here. And that is the show. Thanks so much for listening. 
If you like this episode, please tell the Strathcona Community League, your legal counsel, and anyone who knocks on your door this federal election season. As always, a like, share, subscribe, or rating on iTunes will help us onto the top podcast charts and put us in a few more headphones. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can tweet at us at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. The latest national issue of Spacing Magazine is in stores now, so grab yourself a copy of that. Also, we've partnered up with Evergreen and Future Cities Canada to bring you a special podcast miniseries called The Future Fix, Solutions for Communities Across Canada. The first episode is up, so give it a listen. If you haven't already, we'll continue to post new episodes same place you found this one. In the meantime... Who's ready for a federal election? Cheers. Cheers.